0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Hannah Bowman. Hannah is a literary agent, theologian, and founder and director of Christians for Abolition. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Demons. Demons is a punk rock band from Virginia. You can get connected with Hannah and Demons and their work in the links in the episode description. Today we have Hannah Bowman, and Hannah, you do lots of wonderful things in the world, including you're a literary agent. I don't know if I've had any literary agents on this podcast yet, but uh, beyond that, uh, you also are a theology student. Are you still in your Master's of Arts program? I am. You are. Okay, great. Well, so you're still a student as well as I am. And uh, you do wonderful things, including you talk a lot about prison abolition, which is what we'll be talking a little bit about today. So I'm really excited for this conversation. But before we jump into all of that, who is Hannah Bowman to Hannah Bowman?
1: Oh, that's a hard question to start with. You know, what's really important to me is that I have decided to fully commit to all of the things I am doing. <laughs> so I am a literary agent. I work primarily, although not exclusively with science fiction and fantasy novels, and that is a thing I love. I am a prison abolitionist. I run Christians for the Abolition of Prisons, which is a sort of mostly website, although we're hoping to get more more people involved in that work about abolitionist education for primarily the sort of mainline Protestant Catholic churches. I am a grad student in theology and so I I, I would say I am a theologian. Um, I am a mother. I am a restorative justice practitioner working primarily with circles of support and accountability, which is a a reentry program for people who have committed serious uh, sexual harm Hmm. and What's been really essential to me and and really came about after my daughter was born was a profound sense that I can do all of these things that I don't have to to pick a lane, Mm. but that all the things I do inform each other. And so that was a real epiphany for me, because for a long time I thought, well, I have to be all abolition all the time or I have to be all about my professional life. And I put these walls up to keep it separate. And, And after my daughter was born, I said, no, you know, what I've learned from parenthood is that you can do more than one thing with your entire being. And so that's my goal.
0: I love that. I love that so much. You know, if we have time, I'd love to hear a little bit more about if you have any connections between the science fiction work that you do and prison abolition, because there may or may not be some connections, but... We can get into that later if we have time. So with that said, uh, over the last year uh, while I've been living in Minneapolis, you know, prison and police abolition has really become something that I've become aware of and have, even to a certain degree, as much as I can, be really passionate about it. So I'm really interested in it. With Derek Chauvin killing George Floyd last year... That really largely influenced um, my passion around this work. And there's you know some people who have been a part of this great history of pr- prison abolition for a really long time. Can you share your journey to prison abolition?
1: Yeah, I got into abolition, I started in prison ministry. And so when I was in college, shortly after I was baptized, I started doing a Bible study at a girl's juvenile detention center. And so we were like about 20, the girls were 14 or 15. It was a very um, intimate and profound experience. And I think once you start seeing people in those situations, you can't look back, right? Like that's once you're in it, you, you can't look away. So I was interested in it after After that experience, it took me a few years after college to get back into it. But I began to feel this very profound call to go back to those you know, those places where it seems like God is absent, even though definitely God is present, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, the places that that seem the darkest or the farthest, maybe to a cursory examination, but that turn out to be the places that are really closest to the heart of God. And I really wanted to get into that work. So I, I uh, also volunteered as a chaplain in the LA County jails, I was doing everything I could basically to get in contact with incarcerated people to learn more. And in the course of that learning in the course of reading more and sort of educating myself about the system and being willing to look at these things that were very scary right because i think i think these systems are evil powers and engaging with them is is frightening and anxiety provoking and it certainly was for me and so for me that journey was partly about being willing to look at these anxious places inside of me and say no i'm not going to look away i'm going to understand why we do these horrible things to each other and how we can build something better and more loving and from that research, I came around to a fully abolitionist understanding. I had sort of an epiphany. Actually, I was reading a book by Maya Shenwar, her first book, Locked Down, Locked Out. And I should say for full disclosure that Maya is now one of my clients. And in reading that book, when she starts to talk about restorative justice solutions, it made it feel feasible that we could have a world without prisons. It suddenly was this profound sense of relief for Mm -hmm. me that I had been saying all along well of course prisons are terrible of course this is horrible it's evil it's anxiety provoking it's it's dark it's not the way we're supposed to live but surely we need it and I had felt like I had to defend it and all of a sudden there was this profound relief in saying I don't have to defend this we don't need to live this way we don't need to do this to each other in order to have safety and in fact these things we are doing to each other are not behaviors that promote safety communally and so for me that was just a, a profound epiphany to say oh I can just let this go I can just admit that no of course I don't think anyone should be in prison mm. that's not that's not solving the problem and I really want other people to have that kind of epiphany it was you know a transformative thing for me it was like another sort of conversion experience to say no this is this is changing the direction of my life this is changing the direction of our our common life as a society, I think.
0: Mm. Sort of ancillary to that, I'm just curious. I'm not sure how much of your work now involves you actually going into prisons and working with incarcerated individuals, but. Because you are really public about prison abolition, has that affected that potential work? I, like I have a friend who does some work with incarcerated individuals, and there's only so much that she can kind of put out publicly about her passion for prison abolition just because it can f- affect her ability to actually work with these individuals, um, because, you know, prisons are only going to allow certain kinds of people in.
1: Yeah, that's always a challenging question and a challenging thing to navigate. It has not proven to be a problem for me yet. Mm. I, at the moment, I'm not going into any facilities and that's mainly because of COVID. The, you know, the, the reality of COVID is that the, like the chaplaincy that I was part of in the LA County jails hasn't been back inside the jails since early 2020. So I sort of decided at one point that I was going to be open about the fact that these are my political beliefs, that I have these abolitionist beliefs, um, you know, that I want to see our laws change to be a world without prisons. And I'm aware that there's a, there's a risk to that, but You know, the reality is there are a lot of ways to do work that that helps people, right? And so, like COSA, which is the program that I'm working kind of most with at the moment, primarily through phone calls right now, because Mm. COVID, again, means we haven't been able to work to meet much in person, is primarily a re-entry program. And so it's something that's working outside of the facilities. And so, you know, what I've experienced, and I think what people who many people who do this work experience is that you, you know, you go as far as you can. And if you lose your clearance, you find another way to to be involved in people's mm. lives, right? I mean, you, you, I, I write letters to people who are incarcerated, you know, there are a lot of ways to be present and build community that aren't necessarily just being able to be cleared to go inside. So mm. I, I I don't, I don't encourage people to to be you know, I don't encourage people to not talk about their abolitionist beliefs unless they feel like they need to be careful for their own work, right? It's a very personal decision.
0: I totally understand. So oftentimes when we talk about prison abolition, people who are maybe new to it might assume that it's just about like the abolition of the actual prison walls themselves and that kind of that system. But when you talk about prison abolition, you are also talking about the systems that. that create incarcerated people in the first place. Can you talk about what those systems are and what it means to actually abolish those as well?
1: Sure. And that's not a me thing. That's something that I think that, you know, uh, many has a long history in prison abolitionist organizing, and it's coming out of the Black radical tradition, and it's coming out of the work of incarcerated organizers, and it's, it's really about the systemic understanding. So one of the reasons I think abolition itself, rather than just reform, is an important challenge, particularly for white Christians who are often not super comfortable with it, is because it doesn't deny the radicalism of what's required to combat mass incarceration. Because I know an awful lot of white progressive Christians who say, of course, we want to fight mass incarceration, but why do we have to be abolitionists? We think some people should be in prison, but we want to fight mass incarceration. And what abolition does is it brings this critique that forces you to recognize that you can't fight mass incarceration without making radical changes. Because what worries me about that commitment to ending mass incarceration only is that it doesn't count the cost, right? It doesn't bring, it doesn't come prepared for what it's actually going to take because these systems are all related. So for example, to go right to the heart of it, many, I would say most prison abolitionist theorists understand very clearly that you can't abolish prisons without abolishing capitalism, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. That, that capitalism as it exists is a system that, that relies on the prison in order to propagate itself, right? This is from some of, Work like Cedric Robinson's work on racial capitalism—that you need to have groups who are differentiated, and the prison becomes an instrument for that sort of group differentiation, which allows the engine of capitalism to proceed. Right? You have to have an underclass mm-hmm. in order to to have a capitalist society. So, now that's not to give an answer of what we should do instead. Right? That's to say the critique of capitalism is important. It's not to say, all right, let's set up a socialist state, which you know I think. Uh, I and many other people are are also slightly skeptical of as people who are who are concerned about state power mm-hmm. so I'm to to get to this question about systems, I think we have to look at our economic systems. we have to look at the punitiveness of our culture. we have to look at racism and particularly anti-black racism because of course the reality of American prisons is that they have been intended as a system of racial control, as you know I think we've learned from Michelle Alexander and others. We have to look at our theological narratives that push us towards punishment and exclusion Mm. so my description of prison industrial complex abolition tends to suggest that what we mean by prisons right to avoid getting caught up in well is this a prison is that a prison is this carceral is that carceral what i mean when i talk about prisons is anything which is based on exclusion punishment and control Mm. and when we understand our way of developing safety as being based on exclusion, punishment, and control, we're buying into the carceral logic of the prison. And when you look at it that way, you begin to see how many things in our society are about that. So, you know, this is kind of going back to the old joke about Michel Foucault that like schools are prisons and hospitals are prisons and everything is prisons, right? But you start to see how How are the logics of our parenting driven by exclusion, punishment, and control, rather than by understanding how to work with our children to reach solutions? How are the logics of our churches driven by exclusion, punishment, Mm -hmm. and control? Um, And you know how much this came up in a podcast I was on last week, even when we're talking about things as serious as clergy misconduct, how much of our responses are just to say we have to get rid of that person. We have to make sure they're not in our space. And what would it look like to have a vision of safety that was bigger than exclusion, punishment, and control, right? When we look at our schools, when we look at grading, this comes up a lot in in my household because my husband's a university professor. And so we talk about the philosophy of grading. When you look at grading, to what extent? Is that a a system of exclusion, punishment and control? It's about dividing people up, controlling students and punishing those who don't succeed, right? And Mm -hmm. kicking them out to some degree. And so for me, it's about seeing where those dynamics appear even in our interpersonal relationships. When we talk about cancel culture, right? Not as it's been weaponized by the right but sort of in the discussions of how we engage with each other on social media. How is that about exclusion, punishment and control? So my interest is always in what does real accountability look like? And how do we address accountability while maintaining relationship rather than relying on exclusion, punishment, and control?
0: Mm. That's a question that I have a little later on. uh, And so we can maybe flesh that out a little bit more. But at the beginning, you talked a little bit about the, what I would argue is probably a misguided concern of white progressives about, you know, the question that they often have of, you know, what do we do about people who murder? Those kind of questions. And sometimes that you can be quite of an annoying question, I would imagine. But for those who are maybe new to prison abolition, what is like a response that you have to a question like that of like, what do we do with people who murder?
1: Yeah, I think that's a question that is worth answering um, while also often not being asked in good faith, right? Mm -hmm. So like the first answer has to be the system we have is not providing safety. The reality is that even with policing, the the clearance rate for homicide in most cities is around 50%. Half of murders are never even investigated, right? Mm -hmm. The, The reality is that the system is not preventing these crimes from happening and is not The system is not preventing harm, and the system is not really even addressing it for everybody. So that's, I think, an important critique to bring to bear, right, is to say what we have doesn't work, so let's try something else. And the system is also doing tremendous violence to people who have themselves been victims of harm, right? So when you look at, like, women in prison, an enormous percentage of them have been victims of abuse. And in many cases, when you start talking about something like murder many women end up in prison because they have murdered domestic abusers. And I bring that up as an example to sort of pivot to talking about the fact that murder and all violence really is relational and it's contextual. And so it should have responses that respect the relationality and the contextuality because I think we often operate from the sense that people who have murdered people are inherently dangerous. It's sort of a quality. Now you are a murderer and we can just lock you up. You don't, you can't be in society safely when the reality is that people commit violence for reasons, right? And so often it's contextual conflicts. Like what do we do about murder? Well, we put people in neighborhoods and we encourage people who are already in communities to be to have the capacity to intervene in conflicts, right? We say, okay, this is about, you know, gang violence comes up a lot here in LA. Well, the, the thing that's having the most effect on gang violence is is Homeboy Industries, which is Father Greg Boyle's, you know, project community really, which helps people get out of gangs and gives them jobs. If, you help, if you're understanding why people join gangs and you're known and trusted and can intervene in those conflicts, you can prevent murders before they happen if you look at why, you know, why are women committing murders if they're trying to protect themselves against abusers? Do we really think that putting people in prison is solving the problem there, right? Or do we have to look more seriously at our culture around abuse Mm -hmm. and around self-defense and around who gets to claim self-defense? And that's the work of uh, Survived and Punished, right? Which is one of the big abolitionist organizations specifically around freeing people who have, who have, acted in defense against abuse. So that's sort of my, my first comment is that murder is not all equal, right? And it's all tragic. I'm not trying to say that murder is ever justified necessarily, but rather to say what we have to be doing is looking at prevention and looking at responses that deal with the context, that recognize that somebody who is Dangerous in a certain context is no longer dangerous once you've dealt with the context, right? And then I think there are harder cases. And I think people often pivot to the really hard cases of, like, what if you're a psychopath, a serial killer, right? What do you do in those cases? And I think the answer has to be, first of all, to recognize that those numbers are very small Mm. and to recognize that we are doing a tremendous amount of harm to an extremely large number of people for the basis of locking up a handful of people who really who really would not be maybe able to stop themselves from doing harm. I think we also have to recognize the role that relational and respectful psychiatric or pro-social treatment can have in providing safety. And here's what mm-hmm. I mean by that. I want to get specific because talking about it in general is not maybe very helpful, right? When it comes to, this is not murder, but when it comes to uh, sexual abuse against children, we have laws, like in California, we have this civil commitment law, which is essentially intended to deal with this sort of, these are people who are too dangerous to ever be in society, quote unquote, right? We have people who are involuntarily committed to treatment. Uh, it's tremendously expensive. It's not particularly Uh, effective treatment and who essentially end up locked up in supposedly a non-punitive way in what is probably unconstitutional. They end up locked up in this commitment because they are viewed to be too dangerous. Now, i mention people who have been subject to commitment because that's the population that COSA programs tend to work with. COSA programs are working with people who have gone through that sort of treatment and are providing them with support as they reenter into the community, with support and accountability to provide safety, right? And so if you look at the history of something like COSA, the COSA model is literally three to five volunteers who meet weekly usually with somebody who's re-entering, who provide them with pro-social support, who provide a space for talking honestly about trauma and about the harm they've done and about what their needs are, who provide material supportive needs, who provide really community, right? And the reason that the COSA model was developed was because of precisely this question of what do we do with people who we think are going to commit further harm. This was in Canada, which did not have a civil commitment scheme where somebody was being released uh, everybody basically in the system was concerned, including I think this individual was concerned that he was going to do further harm to children upon his release. And so a local pastor came up with this model of voluntary meetings of building community in order to prevent further harm from being done. Like fundamentally, that's what the work is about. And it worked. The reality mm-hmm. is that they've found that these COSA circles have a 90% reduction rate in wow. the committing of new sex crimes. So. The reason I bring up that specific example is to say that there are things that we are not trying that can be effective and are based on community and relationality and building accountability accountability within relationships, right? Mm-hmm. We tend to we 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 always move directly to these people are incorrigible and so they must be excluded and controlled without trying these other things, without saying, let's build a space. Where we can hold people accountability accountable by treating them like humans, by having relationships with them, by being willing to restrain them the way we would friends. So maybe the, the last thing I will say is that, yes, there are places where you have to restrain someone from committing imminent harm. And I think the way we should think about that is less like civil commitment, less like let's build a structure, let's build an institution, let's put them over there far away from us. And more like the way you stop your friends if they're getting into a fight or the way you take your friend's keys if they're going to drive drunk, right? If you start thinking about restraint of imminent harm as how would you restrain the person you love the most if they're going to do something harmful, that that they will regret. I think that's the paradigm we need to be looking at, because Mm. if we're building those relationships, then we have the relational capacity to restrain people in ways that don't rely on these these institutions that grow and that punish and that exclude and that end up sucking all of the resources out of more relational responses. But we mostly don't have that capacity because we haven't tried to build those relationships Mm. to have the level of trust with people who have done really serious harm to have any other options. And so we, we end up always defaulting to this punitive carceral system, rather than trying to ask ourselves, what else could we do instead? And so that's the other thing that I think is really important about the abolitionist critique besides its understanding of how radically we have to change our systems to fight mass incarceration. I think the other thing is that the relentlessness of abolition requires this relentless focus on alternatives, on building something better. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about saying, this is bad, don't have prisons. It's about saying, what are we going to do? So we don't need prisons. And I think it's hard to get the commitment to do that work when you're still willing to rely on, oh, but if this gets too difficult, we can put somebody in prison. When you insist on the abolitionist critique, you have to come up with something better.
0: I want to get into the alternative theological imagination here in just a second. But before we get into that, for Christian abolitionists, why does the Christian faith demand prison abolition?
1: Fundamentally, I think the Christian faith demands prison abolition because God is a God of liberation and not a God of retribution.
0: Mm.
1: I think there's two really central things we, we know, and this is, this is a, an example. We know that Jesus in his first season in his first sermon in Galilee reads this, this quote from Isaiah, he says, I've come to set the captives free. He says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this is not to say, look, it's a proof text. Jesus says you have to let everybody out of prison, right? Of course, the the contexts are different, but I think it raises a really important question, which is why is the language of liberation the language that Jesus uses? Why is freedom from prison a symbol that Jesus relies on, that Jesus makes central to his ministry, right? And I have heard a lot of people who say, oh, sure, but he's talking about spiritual freedom from the prison of sin and death. And that's true. It's absolutely has a spiritual as well as a material reading. But I think we have to understand the forces of sin and death as being material as well as spiritual forces. And I think we have to keep coming back to that question of what does it mean for us in the most incarcerated society on the planet? What does it mean for us that the metaphor Jesus reaches for, that the metaphor that's come to him from the Jewish tradition is that of freedom for prisoners? So that's One essential answer is that God is bringing about freedom for prisoners. And it's true that Jesus doesn't go letting people out of prison himself. Although if you read the Acts of the Apostles, there's an awful lot of the Holy Spirit does a lot of letting people out of prison pretty shortly thereafter. Right. So so when you start reading it that way, you recognize that Jesus says freedom for prisoners And that we're really reducing his message if we don't understand that as having material consequences. If God is a God who desires freedom from imprisonment of whatever variety, surely that also includes these structures of exclusion control, these demonic structures of violence and power that we have built in the name of justice. So that's that's one side of it. I think the other side of it is that I think it is really important that the whole narrative of jesus ministry of the crucifixion of the resurrection is about the vindication of victims of violence without giving in to retribution for it mm-hmm. and so i think there's a strong anti-retributive message that we see across the entire bible right but maybe that that's particularly clear when we start looking at and wrestling with our theories of the atonement and i think that that non-retribution requires That we move away from prisons, which, no matter how much we tell ourselves, oh, they're just about public safety, are also about retribution and can't get free of that original sin of retributivism.
0: Again, you touched on this just a little bit, but you've been talking a little bit also about how abolitionists want to expand our ideas around prison abolition of being more than just ending the carceral system. So, from a Christian theological perspective, can you talk about how prison abolition is a way of actually living into the resurrection?
1: Oh, I like that. That's a leading question. I think that. I've been reading John Sobrino about the resurrection. I think John Sobrino is really helpful because he talks about how we can have these experiences analogous to the Easter experiences. And he says, we find this, he he uses the language of among the poor. And in particular, that the defining characteristic of resurrection experiences is the vindication of victims. And so I think, and this is again, his language, but I think what we find is that living in the resurrection is this life of vindication for those who have been harmed, including those who have been harmed by systems. And so, for example, uh, Reverend Nakia Smith-Roberts' work on this is very good, and she talks about the resurrection life as being, in part, the vindication of Jesus who dies a criminal and resurrects as the Messiah, right? And so that, in part, the resurrection life is found in the vindication of people who have been criminalized and are now not right. Who are vindicated by God in spite of their criminalization? That that's where resu- that's what resurrection means. And and she's she's talking about this particularly um, for Black Americans. So I think that's an essential piece of resurrection life is this idea that it is opposition to the carceral system because it is the vindication of those who've been criminalized by systems. Mm. But I think there's a broader sense of relationality and community, right? That the resurrection life is fundamentally participation in the the Trinitarian life and that the Trinitarian life is fundamentally a life of mutual and ongoing accountability. And so for me, the resurrection life is not about like perfect peace. It's not about the absence of conflict, but it's about the life in community, which is characterized by conflict and the resolution of conflict, which is characterized by accountability when harm happens, which it will continue to happen, which is characterized by our being transformed through our relationships with other people and our being accountable in relationships with other people. So I always talk about like, I talk about the sacrament of confession, right? As it's practiced in some of these like the Catholic and the Episcopal traditions. And the idea that maybe when we talk about heaven, It's not just like the Eucharist where we all gather at the table together, but it's also like the confessional where we're accountable to one another for the harm we have done. And that that's not a picture of judgment in a bad or punitive way, but is instead what it looks like to be a participant in the resurrection life, which is fundamentally a life of life affirming accountability. Ruth Wilson Gilmore uses this language of death dealing institutions and life affirming alternatives. And I think that is just so central to Christian practice, that ultimately what we're saying is sin, harm, violence, the things we do to one another are not met with death. They're not met with punishment, but instead they are met with life affirming accountability, which is not exactly the same as forgiveness. It's not the same as saying, well, God forgives it. And so it goes away. and You never have to think about it again, but it is a transformation of our understanding of what it means to be accountable for harm.
0: Something I love about your work is you connect prison abolition to universalism. And I'm sure there's lots of other people who have talked about this, but you're the first person who I've seen make those direct connections. So, can you talk a little bit about what universalism means to you and how does it connect to prison abolition?
1: Yeah, universalism to me means that hell has been destroyed. Mm. And I use that language specifically because I don't think it's just about saying, oh, hell isn't a nice concept or God is too nice for there to be a hell. I think that we have to deal with the reality of divine judgment, the reality that when we do harm to each other, that grieves God. And I think the symbol of hell, and I should say I talk about religion frequently in language of symbols, kind of drawing on on Paul Tillich's use of symbol. And so that's, I think symbols and the demythologization of them is really important. But I think the symbol of hell is a powerful and and sort of essential symbol of divine judgment. I don't think we should say, oh, well, we don't need to worry about that because we don't like to think about it. I think instead, for me, universalism is really based on the idea that Jesus descended into hell, that Jesus went down there. And if you look at some of the Eastern Orthodox icons of the descent into hell, or you look at some of the, Um, early descriptions of it, so there's a great description of it in the 4th century Gospel of Nicodemus, Jesus goes down there and sets the prisoners free. It says very explicitly, Jesus is on his way, and Satan and Beelzebub in the Gospel of Nicodemus are talking to each other in hell, and and Satan says, oh no, why did you send Jesus down here? He's gonna set everybody loose. And then he comes down, he breaks the door down, he takes them by the hand, and he drags them up to heaven. Like, this is what happens. It's very exciting. It's a divine prison break. So I think... We have to recognize the resonance between these symbols of the descent into hell and the freedom from the prison. Right? We have to recognize the resonance. This is in Lee Griffith's book between the power of death and hell and the prison, and the fact that in the Bible, death is sort of expressed as the prison of the soul. And so there's this long and ancient resurrection tradition as being about the the freeing from this prison of the soul. So I think in that sense, the abolition and universalism tendency is there from very early on. And I think when we start reading, for example, the ancient tradition that Jesus came down and saved Adam and Eve, if we understand Adam and Eve as typological representatives of all of humanity, it's not just saying, oh, Jesus saved those who came before him. It's not limited. It's saying somehow this symbolizes the divine descent to all of humanity that brings everybody into freedom, right? And I think that's profoundly abolitionist. I think there's also this sense of liberation through solidarity that's really important, right? That that in Hans Urs von Balthasar's work on the descent, Jesus is dead with the dead. And so there's this sense that this isn't just coming in from the outside because when we talk about abolition, we're also talking about the work of incarcerated people to organize for their own liberation. And so I think it's really important that there's an understanding of solidarity that Jesus comes to be with people who are subject to these, these forces of death and control and to let them out. But ultimately, there's this this absolutism, right? There's this understanding that prisons are bad for everybody, that hell is bad for everybody, that this power of hell is fundamentally inconsistent with a god of liberation, Mm. and therefore has to be destroyed. It's a symbol we sort of had to have in a dialectical sense in order to have the dialectical understanding of divine judgment, but ultimately it's overcome. So I think You know, I think there are so many resonances between hell and the prison that that universalism and abolition fit very well hand in hand, because they're both about how do we make space in our community for accountability with people who have done serious harm, with people who we don't know how to deal with. Right. Like, that's the hard question of universalism is like, what do you do about Hitler? Right.
0: (laughs) Right? Right.
1: And that's, and that's the hard question. And the answer isn't Jesus has saved everybody by pure grace and now it's all forgiven and we don't deal with each other anymore. I think the answer is heaven is the place where we have structures of accountability that are even big enough for us to deal with Hitler in relationship, mm-hmm. right? For us to hold Hitler accountable, to not say it's forgiven and you live in paradise forever, but instead to say in the light of eternity, we are going to transform, right? Like we are going to have justice for everybody who's been hurt. And we are going to have transformation for everybody who's done harm. And so I guess the one other thing I would say on this question of abolition and universalism, because I think it is important, as I touched earlier on the idea of you know capitalism, racial capitalism, drawing on needing the prison in order to reproduce itself, and I think in exactly the same way the church has has used hell to reproduce itself. Mm. And so as we understand that genealogical intertwining, that way in which well now that we have hell, we can justify prisons because they're not as bad as hell, right? Because we're saving people from hell. As we understand that intertwining that will help us to reconstruct a theological narrative in which hell has been overcome and so prisons are also.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because my very next question is, so you talk a little bit also about substitutionary atonement and prison abolition, and I really disagree with any notion of atonement for the exact reason that you just brought up, but I am curious to see how you connect substitutionary atonement with prison abolition. I'm very curious about this.
1: Yeah, well, so I should say that my theological instincts are reconstructive. So Mm. that's not to say I object to, that's not to say I reject any of the criticisms. I think all of these criticisms that are made of things like substitutionary atonement, of things like hell are valid and important. Once that has been done, I am always interested in the question of, can we reclaim this? Can we reconstruct this? Can we Mm. understand this in a completely different way? that still makes use of these old symbols, but that gives them new life for liberation, right? So that's partly where I'm coming from. For me, the question of substitutionary atonement was posed, it was actually a blog post by Morgan Guyton that I read, and he was posing it as essentially a rhetorical question to evangelicals, which was, if you believe that Jesus paid the debt for everyone's sin, then why do you wanna see people punished? And I thought that, I think that substitutionary atonement poses a really profound question, right? I think it's a provocative question to say, if you think that Jesus' death was the end of punishment, then why are you still pushing for punishment? And I think, as we just sort of talked about with hell, I think there are valid genealogical reasons and particularly racialized reasons that those doctrines have developed side by side, that substitutionary atonement has come to, ble- to mean, oh, God desires more punishment rather than this is the end of punishment. So, what I'm interested in is the end of punishment, right? I'm interested in how does God reject retributiveness? I think there are two reasons to even, and I'm just going to sketch an argument here, right? Cause this is a, this is, this is hard to make precise, but I think there are two reasons to think about maybe why some concept of substitution could have a place in atonement. And I also want to be really clear that I'm not talking about God desired Jesus's death or God required that Jesus pay off a debt to God. It's not about God paying off God, right? It's a broader understanding of atonement as God's intervention in our human relationships of violence. That's where I think it fits in. So I think there's two issues, right? I think one is that victims rightly desire vengeance. And I think we can agree that you shouldn't act on that desire for vengeance, that you shouldn't construct you shouldn't construct systems of retribution around the desire for vengeance. But I also think it's cruel to deny the validity or the reality of that desire for vengeance, of that sense that something is owed to you when you have been harmed. And you can think of it more as vengeance or the desire for punishment. You can think of it more as the desire for reparations, the understanding of debt. But the reality is that something is owed to people when they have been harmed, right? That's a key feature of restorative justice is this sense of reparation. And too often the church tries to brush past it and the church tries to say, oh, but we should have forgiveness. And now you're being pressured to forgive and to essentially forgive that debt against you. And it leads to really harmful understandings of reconciliation without accountability. So I think there's value in debt language as a sort of corrective to that kind of forced reconciliation, to that forced forgiveness. I think it's valuable to say, no, this debt is real. And however God intervenes in relationships of violence, he has to do so in a way that doesn't deny that there's a reality of debt when harm is done. But I also think that fundamentally atonement is about divine solidarity with humanity, Mm -hmm. right? And I think the reality of humanity is that there's not a dichotomy between victims and perpetrators of violence. It's not that some people are good and some are bad. It's not that some people have been harmed and some have done harm. The reality is that everybody has done harm and everybody has been harmed. And that means that divine solidarity with humanity as a mechanism of atonement has to be solidarity with us as people who are both guilty and harmed, Mm -hmm. right? As people who have done harm and have been harmed. And so for me, when we start looking through the lens of solidarity, it's helpful to understand God's solidarity with us insofar as we've been harmed in the form of vindication, right? And you see that in um, some of the theology from, from Moltmann or even from James Cone about sort of solidarity with those who are crucified, the crucified peoples of the world in Yasuela Correa's terminology. And I should say that even that, theology is certainly criticized from other <laughs> from other quarters, and particularly from feminist and womanist perspectives. But I find it to be a really helpful thing in the liberation theology perspective, this idea of divine solidarity with those who are, quote, crucified by the world in the form of vindication. But I think we also need to have a way of understanding divine solidarity with us insofar as we are guilty of doing harm. And it can't just be the solidarity of vindication. It can't just be, God has made everything okay, God is on your side, because that denies the reality of the debt. And so for me, that's where substitution has a place in that understanding Jesus as the quote substitute provides a way for divine solidarity that says this debt still exists, this debt still exists and Jesus is standing here as a sign that this debt still exists, but also as a sign that God is on your side as you help pay off that debt. And also as a statement against retribution. And so I've been very influenced by Mark Himes' book about the cross as an anti-scapegoating event, right? Mm -hmm. As God's intervention in scapegoating violence, he does a sort of Girardian reading. I think it goes further than scapegoating. I think that fundamentally, This idea of substitution is partly a way of saying, yes, there's a debt. There's a debt that's caused when we harm someone. We owe them a debt. And yet the movement of retribution, which is the movement of taking that debt and turning it back around on the person who's guilty in punishment, that movement is fundamentally invalid it's not the kind of debt that can be turned that way, because that act of punishing doesn't help heal. And so the other piece of it is that I think the language and the symbol of substitution can be helpful in expressing how does Jesus interrupt that debt, right? If you want to go back to the classic language of like he interposed his precious blood, think about it as there's this debt that's caused by harm. And when you try to turn it back around in punishment, that's where God and Jesus interrupts the debt. So that's like a very brief summary of a bunch of ways that the language of substitution can, I think, be provocative and helpful in expressing some things about divine solidarity, about non-retribution in ways that are respectful to the the reality of the dynamics of human violence. Mm. But what I've just said is very clearly not a sort of traditionally Christian orthodox right. uh, substitutionary atonement.
0: Totally, totally. If a listener who hasn't really explored too much of prison abolition is listening, what is it that they can do with and for prison abolition? What are some kind of beginning steps that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, I think one of the most important things you can do is find a way to develop a relationship with incarcerated people. Mm. So that could be by writing letters. I know that Black and Pink uh, is a very good organization for writing letters, particularly to LGBTQ incarcerated people. And so finding a way to get involved with some sort of organization that does that and, and make friends, right? Because those relationships are really important. And there are other, obviously other things like chaplaincy, like you know, all sorts of... of uh, organizations for support for people who are incarcerated or who are returning from incarceration. Um, I should say for any of your listeners who are in Los Angeles, we are continuing to recruit volunteers for our Circles mm-hmm. of Support and Accountability for our COSA program here in LA. And so, you know, I'm please reach out to me if if you're interested in that. So I think that's one piece, right, is that build relationships, get close to people, develop a better understanding by knowing people. I think that Education is really important. So I feel like I need to to plug my site, christiansforabolition.org here, which has lots of resources to get you started learning more. And I think learning more about abolition and the long history of it and what incarcerated people are doing to organize for their liberation and how we sort of develop a theory and a theology that supports it is important. I think you can support your local movements. So we haven't talked a lot about police abolition, but it's certainly related. And and obviously Black Lives Matter and and defund the police movements are happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. So supporting local movement is helpful. Um, Those are probably my sort of best ideas of how to get started, like find proximity, learn more, get involved in the movement and for anybody who's clergy or who is preaching we also have a series going on on the christians for abolition site abolition lectionary which is precisely intended as a preaching aid using the text from the common lectionary we post something every week about here's an abolitionist way of reading this text so you know i think that i think that sliding more abolition into your teaching and your preaching is also really essential if you're in a position to do that in your congregation
0: that's awesome. Cool. I didn't know that. Well, I'll definitely have to be checking that out. Second to last question: How is this work inspiring and liberating theological work? It might be very obvious, but I am curious how you'd answer it.
1: What I love about this work is that my abolition has changed my theology as much as my theology has informed my abolition. Mm. So before I got into reading, reading and practicing abolition. I was 90% universalist, but not maybe all the way there. And it's confirmed my universalism, which again has been a tremendous relief to my Mm -hmm. theology. It has affected my understanding of my own sacramental practice. It affects how I understand the Eucharist and particularly the openness of the Eucharist to everybody, which has been really affected by, by serving the Eucharist in prisons. It has affected my own practice of confession as I try to understand what relationships of accountability in the church look like and how we can build these accountable communities in small ways in our own communities. So it has it has affected my own sacramental theology. It has affected my understanding of how I relate to God and how I relate to the tradition and how at a certain point you have to say, you know, if these things seem wrong, they are wrong. (laughs) And if these things are not liberating and life affirming, then they are not of God. And so in that sense, it has been a, a profoundly liberating way of doing theology for me to be able to say, no, it's good to bring this commitment to the liberation of all. It is good to bring that and to read the Bible through that and to understand that these a priori commitments are going to inform my theology. It has made me understand my own theology better.
0: I love that. Last question, how can listeners get connected to you and your work?
1: Yeah, you can connect through my site, christiansforabolition.org, which also has ways to contact me. I am also available to do educational events, particularly for churches or Christian groups, but I'm always happy to come speak to your group. I can do presentations. I've got Bible studies. There's all sorts of materials there. And including some work that that the stuff that really excites me right now, which is this work about sort of community accountability and how do we build those structures and how do we build those structures in our Christian communities. So uh, you can contact me through that site. I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Hannah N.P. Bowman on Twitter, and you can see lots more of my work there.
0: Well, Hannah, this has been such an incredible conversation. I you know, have been probably following your work at least for a few years and have just really, it's really connected a lot of dots for me that I struggled to connect. And so thank you so much for your work. And it's really caused me to dive deeper into lots of theological conversations around prison abolition and abolition just in general as well. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit more. I think this is an incredible episode for people to kind of get introduced to these concepts around prison abolition, abolition in general, universalism, and uh, all of these sort of theological ways of thinking of these things. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me here. This was great. And we didn't even have a chance to talk about process theology.
0: We'll do that some other time. Next time.